Chapter 14 is where we will be. We're going to see if we can get through most of it. And the only way, in my opinion, to really have this make sense is to talk about the senselessness of it all, but also to focus on, I think, three areas that compellingly point to what David should have done and didn't do, but we're going to try to see if we can bring that out a little bit. And I think that it has application because all of us could find ourselves as well perhaps being either fearful or apathetic to address things that the Lord desires for us to just be done with. And I mean that in terms of the crises. There's always a solution to the crises. There is a reason for it, and there's always a solution to it. And God has those answers. Will our personality get in the way of what God wants to remedy? That's the trick. So, is there something going on right now? Just Sunday school class? Oh, good. Okay, good. <laughs> Usually whenever I see them march out, it means that there's a song, and so I was ready to move over. As an elementary teacher, whenever you see a class that does that, that's a good class. That's pretty awesome. So they're following a good teacher there. So getting back, and maybe we can edit that out, is to understand some of the principles that God really was working in David's heart. It's not simply looking at David historically, because he was. But guess what? Tomorrow we will all be historical too. Some will know our life story better than others. So when we look back on David's life, it's not simply to say, oh, he was an historical figure. He was historical, but he was biblical, highly spiritual. And the things that he really had to deal with are the stuff that we have to deal with, too. It's the only way that any of this moves beyond the pages and actually can do something fundamentally for us. And remember, one of the things is, is it's not God's heart that we come away from this word despondent and without an answer, it's that we become responders, which is far different than despondent. We want to be able to respond to the word, to come into agreement with it, even when it's messy, even when it speaks of the things that we know we've already addressed. And that's dysfunction. And every single one of us, because of sin, could not stand before God and say, Oh, I was highly functional, Lord. You know me. I mean, I wore you like a robe. And no one saw anything in me. And God says, Yeah, but I see you in spite of the robe. I see you in spite of everything that is noteworthy to boast in. But I also see you in that which is unworthy to even consider. But when he looks at us, as he looks at David, it's not to indict us. It is to conform us into the image of his son. So what we need to understand is that even in this, there is a conformity that God is doggedly in pursuit of David to remain in. Not simply to leave it where Nathan left off in the proclamation, you are that man, but for David to take that act of 
contrition and responding to the Lord's forgiveness and to be able to move through 20 years of hard road ahead. When you heard me read what it was I read, this should inform you that was when I did the tithes and the offerings. That needs to tell you that that ultimately was a, a very triumphant historic figure because he's speaking about this on the aftermath of all the junk that we're reading now. It's almost like a spoiler, but I appreciate being spoiled in that sense. One of the things that you and I remember of our school days is when we had to write that report, what would we do? We'd scan the front, we'd through the center, and we'd get to the closure. Because most of us, okay, maybe it was me. <laughs> maybe it was me. But the Lord got the laugh, the last laugh. He made me into a teacher. So what I had failed in as a student, he perfected me in as a teacher. But when we look at what I read concerning David's heart for the house of the Lord, you need to understand that's at the latter part of his life that he declares that. Solomon's already on the scene. And Solomon right now has been kind of dismissed. We know that he's here somewhere in the mix, but he's not as old as these other guys that we've been citing right now. In Solomon's world right now, which probably puts him at around age six in our study right now, he's the one that God's looked at and is going to raise up. And his brothers have been clueless as they move in to do what? War with one another fight each other, and ultimately fight with David. That's the spoiler. We came to a good conclusion saying that regardless, David kept his focus on the Lord, on the house of the Lord, and the purpose as well that out of all the sons that he had, he was going to give that responsibility to the one that the Lord had appointed, not what others may have wanted. And we're going to run into one of those guys. In chapter 14, now where we're at is where Absalom, if you were here with us on Thursday, has gone away to what would be his father-in-law on the other side. His mother was a princess, David's wife, and so Absalom goes away. He goes away in order to just be through with the charges that no doubt are levied against him for murdering Amnon. And he goes away in flight to protect himself. But we also know that he goes away in flight to perhaps begin a conspiratorial charge against his father. That'll come a little bit later. But he's absent right now. He took Tamar into his home for two years. And then what we know is that in that time that he was there in two years and the fleeing, that in verse 38 tells us he basically headed to the water's edge where his father-in-law was king over that area. Three years, total of five right now. And we're now in this particular period of time, we're in his absence from David's sight, 
there's a person that wants to kind of throw himself into the mix and see if he can put these two together. Right or wrong, it tends to be what we do. We want to see people are together, and sometimes it may not be the best thing. Other times it may be the only thing. And for certain, one of the premises of today's teaching is that there must be the bedrock of forgiveness. It's got to be done. And this is where David is being challenged. Forgiveness in a time of his failure and a time of his family failing miserably. Forgiveness. Joab, the son of Zariah, this is David's sister, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. That's true. For whatever reason, David had a special favor in terms of what he thought of Absalom. That can happen, a bias, a favor. This seems to be what David had. We're not sure why. We have a picture of Absalom coming up that could probably be for you and I what we would say is, ah, impressive. We can be impressed with people. But it's tricky with fathers and with mothers because God doesn't see the favorites that we sometimes can be persuaded by. And so in this particular case, there are others that David could have set his sights on. For instance, Abigail had her son, Chiliad, who's also noted as Daniel. And Abigail, again, is one of these wonderfully mentioned women in the scriptures, and one of the ones that we know most of than any of them, apart from Bathsheba and Michael, that was extraordinary in beauty, in wisdom, in intellect, in labor, and had the son, and we know very little about David's son, Chiliab, also noted as Daniel. What in the world? Why is he absent from our understanding of what it was he did. And so we don't have an answer. Did he die early? Did he die before he was a man? We don't know. But what we do know is that where David right now has had the challenge in his own life of dealing with failure, can he bring his family back together? That's the question. And if he brings them back together, what is God asking of him right now before that can even happen? He's asking that there is forgiveness that David operates in. And he's asking this of David because it was granted to him. Remember, David's now lined up in a covenant relationship with God through his lineage to deliver Messiah. And when we, who are in that lineage spiritually, are a part of God's work, then God works things out of us that are not complementary towards the lineage of Jesus. That's why it's called, what we would say, a very narrow road. That cross compels us to be on a very narrow road. And David right now, in a series of consequences is on a broader road. The Lord is really at his right hand. David knows the presence of God. 
And what we're seeing now are the characters in David's life that are actually contributing to the complexity of his life. What does David do? Well, he's going to get wise in a few verses. Unfortunately, five years have passed. And therefore, because of complacency or the sense of failure, it gets a bit more complicated. So I might say this even before we advance on. If there's a reason and need that the Lord has put on your heart today, and it deals with the area of forgiveness, do it. Forgive. By the way, that doesn't mean that you will be rewarded by the person that you forgive. But God will be highly rewarded by what it is you do. Then you leave it in God's hands. And we can cite some scriptures that are very comforting and yet at the same time very sobering with what Jesus even said about that. But there is something that David could have done that now has lingered on for over five years, and it is forgiveness. Because ultimately, not forgiving, in this case, Absalom for a premeditated murder of Amnon, not calling immediately to attention Amnon's sin and bringing him into counsel, not coming to the aid and side of Tamar, there's a compounding interest of sin that has now complicated David's life. And what you need to see, what I'm seeing in this, is God is doing everything now objectively, purposefully, for David to come into that same realization that he did with Nathan. Only he's using another couple of people for that. Forgiveness, in what circumstance? In failure. Joab concerned about what he sees in David's life regarding Absalom. Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. There's a player that he's bringing in. She's wise, but she's going to be an actress. He's doing this because he realized how significant Nathan was as a prophet. There is a difference between an actress and a prophet. The prophet was sent by God. An actress is being sent by a man who's serving a man of God. And the reason that I say that is God is able to most certainly use a second or third person in a chain of command to bring a reality to one who's just not getting it. It's not faulting her, but what it's saying is that Nathan made such a connection with David that it was evident to Joab. Joab's going to replicate it, but the replicating of it is actually by God's allowance. Nathan doesn't need to come into David's life again on issue about his heart that was already addressed. You have been forgiven. You shall not die. So very often what can happen to you and I as believers is we'll go, well, if God was serious about it, he'd bring something, you know, really dramatic into my situation again. He'd bring somebody that's really just, you know, I can't argue with that. Can't. Mm, that's Nathan. Don't touch that one. And that isn't the way that God works. He tunes our heart, he dialogues with us, and then he sees how sensitive you are to the message that he will give 
through another person who may be in fact an actress, who may be in fact an actor, who may be in fact one who's knitted with you. In this case, Joab was. He was his general. And by the way, when you look at this, they're the ones that you go, who would trust them? See, very often that's what the Lord will do too. He won't bring you someone necessarily that you ought to trust. He will bring you somebody that requires you to trust God more than you ever have, ever. So this wise woman, that's a credit. And this one now who is going to be listening to Joab's script that tells you what he's doing is being brought. Please pretend to be a mourner. That's what he's telling her to do. And put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. So there's nothing that's going to be able to infatuate David. Even if she was, she's to appear before David stingy. Not anything that he would desire except to hear her case and get her out of the way. Most of it is intended to put on this air so that she can deliver a script to David. But I also find it very interesting too that the most unlikely people can come in when you least expect them and God's looking at us saying, what will we do about it? What will we do about it? That incident happened twice last week, similar to this. And I think that the Lord allowed me to see in it, you know, my heart. I think that we passed as a church. But you might have recognized someone that had not come here, that did come here, and she had challenges with hygiene and wellness and that led to the next day in which I believe the Lord was saying intercede and see that she is able to go on her way safely and we had wonderful people that helped partner with I believe that assignment but what I'm saying is is that those are precisely the kinds of people that the Lord tests our heart with how will you here in that and the Lord may even say and why would I bring this upon you and David right now may find himself going man wh why out of everything right now that has happened do I have to deal with this and that's precisely it of all the things that have happened David didn't deal with it and so one was put before him as facade but to give a principle on what he needed to do. Didn't do, needed to do, and it's the only way he's going to get out of his predicament. Now, you know the story, so will he get out of his predicament? It'll actually get worse. But what does he end up doing? He ends up having a restoration of his heart for God because he's willing to do something in this area of forgiving his son. Note again, five years. Note again, somebody that is brought to his attention that right now requires, because of how she's presented herself, a quick hearing and an accurate answer on what it is that he will do. 
And so in the morning clothes that she puts on, the perfume that we, she will not put on, she is going to go in there and provoke him. Go to the king, speak to him in this manner, verse 3. So Joab put the words in her mouth. That's a good phrase. You put words in my mouth. In this case, this was permitted to put words in her mouth to connect with David's ears. Go to the king, speak to him. Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, verse 4, she fell on her face to the ground, prostrated herself, and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to put um, them apart. But the one struck the other and killed him. Verse 7, And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that they may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also, so they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. So in the scenario, David would understand this, that if the only two sons she had, as she's presenting that, losing one to the brother and the brother to the executioner, there would be no one to carry on the name of her husband. In Israel, this would be a tragic event. It was intended to pull on the heartstrings of David. Why? David was considered to be not only a fair king, he was considered to be very astute, very wise. And he would have a heart as a shepherd for what would be, to them, a very difficult resolve. Huh, this, we can't let this happen. That's what Joab knows in how David would respond. Joab knows this about his king. He knew about the heart that his king had because in battle he would prohibit an injustice being done against Saul at least three times when they had advantage of him. David would not permit Saul to be taken out of the way. So notably, Joab right now is setting this up because he knows how to touch the heart of David and to receive an answer that he can use being an advocate for Absalom. That's where this is all going. The king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, my lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and my father's house and the king and his throne be guiltless. Noble. See where it's going. So the king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. He's a defensive shepherd. Then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord, the king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty 
in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. What she ended up doing in the last phrase was committing him to a vow to the Lord, which she knew he would not break, or rather what Joab knew he would not break. Why is this coming about? Again, this isn't simply the issue of dysfunction, nor is it simply about correction of Amnon. It is God's intention right now to put an end to the delay of putting things back into order and to create an opportunity in which David can end these 20 years remaining, less now, because remember at least five years have passed, and to have at least a fruitful impact in the time that's going to be very heavy for him to walk. God is always desiring to be true to his word with regard to us. We don't need to let incidences that have happened for all of us be our epitaph. We are more than conquerors. We are victors. We all mess up. Every single one of us. And so the Lord may indeed say, I'm bringing someone in to your life, to your situation, to basically not put you on trial, but to liberate you from being bound up again. I released you, you're getting bound up again, I want to liberate you. And yet, very often we fight saying, well, it can't be through that person, it can't be through that scenario. It's got to be through somebody with authority and spiritual kindness, not stench, not one of them, not somebody that nuisances me, you know. And so that's really what the Lord's doing. He's putting something right now that brings David down a notch. It would be easy for David to repent at Nathan, and he did. It would be far less easy for him to repent with an actress, and in particular with Joab. See, he's already got issues with Joab. Joab's not a great guy right now. Joab's done a lot of harm. And you need to understand that Joab is under curse. Because of his maliciousness and his murderous accomplishments, killing Abner by deceit, when the kingdoms were merging, David gave a curse that, in fact, Joab would uh, ultimately inherit. And Joab's a nephew of David. David's got a lot of stuff that just isn't going well on the family part of it. And you would say, why would God, who looked at him, pick him when all of this mess was bound to happen? It's because God allows the messes in our life to happen either sequentially or accumulatively based on what we've sown in our life. And the only way that we move from it, the only way that we prosper disregarding it, is to come back to the simplicity that we have a God who knows, knows me, knows my situation, and I'm just going to fall on my face, and I'm going to get honest with God, and I'm going to allow the Lord to not require any more players in my life. See, that's probably, I don't want any more players in my life. 
I'll take care of those who are under my charge, those who indeed I could have done better with, but no more players, Lord. You'll never have to send anything else, anyone else to me because my heart's going to connect with you in such a way that I will not lie. I won't try to outrun you. I won't try to stop you. I'm just going to say, Lord, whatever you say, I don't want jobs in my life in the way that they can be treacherous and deceptive. I don't want <laughs> the fragrance of people offending me when I want your fragrance that truly is the fragrance of my life. Pick your fragrance, Jesus, or someone that in fact will offend you. Pick. I'd rather pick Jesus. So Joab moves through this right now. David realizes that he's given a covenant pledge to this woman who is at the bidding of Joab. And he says this with regard to this. For we will surely die. This is 14. This is not him. This is her. We will surely die and become like water spilled in the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. There you go. If that's all I get to, that's where we're at. She is speaking words that I think are of spirit, saying that even though we, in circumstances where we can suffer great offense and in which great punishment certainly would be warranted, the word God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. That's where we look at the grace of God and we would say, how could this be? How can it be that God, who uses the law to put people under it, and for the purpose of revealing what it takes to be perfect before him, how is it that a statement such as this could be true in which he will move things about sovereignly to do this one thing, protect the banished ones, that they might not be expelled from him. That's actually a beautiful statement of grace. And what you need to be then called back to attention on, which is important, is this. Jesus from the cross spoke these words, probably with bated breath. He probably with severity had to breathe just to utter them, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We always think that people know what they're doing. The enemy knows what they're doing. God knows what they're doing. We don't know what they're doing. The Lord would say this, that when you have a challenge on thinking about the motive of a person, assume that this is the worst. They don't know what they're doing. As opposed to thinking about, yes, they do, think they do not know what they're doing. That's what Jesus chose to say. He could have indicted every single Pharisee on that ridge at Calvary, every Roman soldier. He could have refused to utter that. And I'll tell you, it wouldn't have been just dying on the cross that did it. Jesus needed to pronounce forgiveness with his heart, with his dying breath, in order for the transaction of the cross to take place. 
he had to speak the word of forgiveness that his body now was willing to be laid down as an offering. Animals can't speak. They're only pictures. Their bleeding means nothing on behalf of men. Mooing, braying, bleeding, cackling, nothing can transact. That's symbolic. Jesus is the holy lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. He had to transact. In other words, he had to make a covenant declaration as David did in the pledge that this woman put him under. The Lord who would follow David had to make the confession to his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And though we know that seemingly the Father and Jesus precisely knew, forgiveness means you will treat it as if they never knew what they were doing. And it was absolute, and it was authentic, and it ratified from the perspective of God the decision that we would be forgiven for our sins. How do you relate this into this? Okay, remember we're jumping really far ahead right now. But when Jesus said this, you know that the people had asked for one prisoner to be released. And it was Barabbas. He was a zealot. He was noted as a murderer. In essence, Joab's coming in. He realizes that David's son, whom he loves, is a murderer of his brother. He's in a lineage literally that's holy, but he's also in a lineage that's highly carnal. Absalom represents the both, the, the best and worst of what God came to do. Save humanity from both what it thinks is the best of it and what God realizes is the worst of it. And this is where Absalom represents a picture of that what God would be willing to do even to turn the heart of Absalom back towards his father while God is also asking David to turn his heart back to him. Where he was forgiven, God is asking that of David not to do politics anymore. This is all pol politics right now. It's the expediency of having authority over a kingdom, being afraid what the people would perceive, He's got right now other sons that were a part of that murderous scenario. And no doubt he is trying to appease, if not protect them. He's in a quagmire. And we can either say, oh, well, tough luck, so am I, big deal. Or we can say, so what would David have learned in this? The only thing that I'm able to say in terms of what he actually learned would have been satisfied in what I read for tithes and offerings, and that is this. He kept his heart directed to the Lord, even though his heart would break every single day in the dilemma he was in. Have you ever been in that situation where what's on your heart is just, it's breaking, and you're going, oh, not another one. Not another, really, another one? Really? Is this as good as it's going to get in God's way? No, it's going to get way better. But what I'm doing in that breaking is I'm reshaping you because you have life, you have a plan to finish this life in the manner that will bring me glory. 
they are incidences after incidences after troubling times that is intended to do one thing. And that brings us to the second point that I think bears witness. God's asking that as David received mercy in judgment, he be a minister of mercy in judgment. He can bank on that. Even when people would say, hey, wait a minute, what's this about? You can't do that to your son. He can say, this is the heart of God. You know what happened to me. It's out. It's been published. You're aware. I messed up. But what God did for me, I also will grant and do for others. Not only in my family, I will do for any here today. That's really what David would have been directed to do. Any of you of my kingdom who have messed up, I will do for you what God did for me. We'll change things. We'll do this by forgiving one another. The time of judgment is over right now. And thirdly, the thing that we need to see that the Lord's directing ultimately this chapter towards is character and consequence. It is both forgiveness and failure. It is mercy and judgment, and it is character in consequence. Not from consequence, not through it, but right in the midst of it. Oh, man, look what has happened. Character in consequence is different than after consequence. One says you're going to measure up in it when everybody else says there's no chance of it. And in consequence means that everything you've got is being submitted to the Lord. Nothing less. You're not going to add one thing to it. You may be in the Absalom mindset. It's all about promotion. And God says, I bring glory to myself in demotion. I do better when there's nothing else you can cling to but me. The woman was brought in by Joab. God allowed these two individuals to be what it took for David to make a commitment to get things done. He had delayed too long. As a result of his delay, then I think you know how the story plays out. A son that may have been able to be redeemed becomes a conspirator against him. One of the things you have to remember is that even Absalom would have been clueless about what he needed to know a lot earlier. And maybe this is something to even consider. If Solomon in this time frame right now is within the age of perhaps seven years at the most, if we follow sequentially the age, David moving shortly into being 57, 58 years of age. They need to know. God has whispered in my ear. His name is because he is the appointed heir. Take that off your schedule, guys. Brothers, it's not for you. You will serve one who is younger than you, and you will honor God. And yet that isn't the revelation that ever really happened. Did Absalom kind of go, huh, his name's a little bit different than ours. Did you get that, guys? Jedediah, Solomon. It's got a different ring to it. There's just like a, there's a meaning that's different than ours. I think he's the guy. We better talk that over with Dad. 
But see, even that is something that never came out. Why? Maybe David knew. Man, in kingdoms, it's always about who you can get out of your way, not who you can make way for. And that's true. In those, in those forms of government where kings were in place, there was always somebody looking to see who you needed to get out of the way in order to take the spot. And David probably realized that that was the mindset. I'll protect him. But remember, he didn't need to protect Solomon from anyone. He needed to nurture Solomon and needed to bring his sons in and say, this little bundle of joy is God's act of mercy and grace to me. And he is the one that will take my spot. So when you're on babysitting duties, I expect you to be exceedingly sharp. I expect you to handle him as you would knowing that God's eye is upon you. I expect for diaper changes to be precise. I expect for feedings to be absolutely without incident of choking. I want him to learn how to play by the rules, not by deception. Do you understand that, my sons? Yes, Dad. And he is what? He is the heir apparent. Yes, he is. What does that make him to be? He will be our king. Yes, he is. What does that make him? He's a prince just like we are. Yes, he is. What does that make you? Princes in waiting? Servants of the higher prince. <laughs> You're not going to be waiting for anything except for God to seat Solomon in a place that you will not be given. Let's make this thing work out. Let's finish up my rule with dignity. And let's show the world what it takes to pull things together when everything's come apart. In essence, boiling it down here, this is the terms that happens. What we know, I'll pick it up on Thursday, is that Absalom, based on King David's word, is invited to come back from Geshur, to come into this place, to have not audience yet with his father, but to have placement near his father. And you're going to see another two years that pass. That'll be picked up in verse 25. So now a total of seven years is going to pass in which audience has not been given to Absalom. What's the principle? The principle is even though we can hear something, we can delay in the doing of something. And especially when it's on the issues of ministering grace in the form of forgiveness. When we're always trying to say, Okay, well, I've got to line my ducks up first. God doesn't care about you lining up your ducks. He doesn't even care about the pond. What he cares about is the person that has been put on your heart that needs to hear the words, you're forgiven. And you may not end up having those acknowledgments even granted to you. And that's a killer, by the way. That's a killer when you know that you've extended your heart and it's to forgive an offense that truly warrants that to be said, I forgive you. And the hardest thing is to not have it reciprocated, such as, I am so sorry. Thank you.
so tough. It's a sword. It's a spear. It is so much a breaking of the heart. But whatever that may mean to us, I know this, that the essential part of this story is that it was overwhelming David. And God just wants to relieve David and to make him a better picture of ultimately what would be the second and greater David, Jesus. For Jesus will not violate one thing in terms of we, what we would call the crucible of humanity, the mess of sin. He perfectly dispatches grace and mercy of character, not in simply where he's at, but deeply in the heart of those people where they're at. And there's a, Jesus could affect any scenario that he wants to, but what he was mostly important about was the inside of a person to touch them, to affect them. Those that chose not to, we know who they're called. They're called the Pharisees. They never responded to the Lord. Some did. They were extolled by the Lord. Nicodemus, pretty awesome. Joseph of Arimathea, pretty awesome. Some responded. 